Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Maine. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Marissa Kennedy was the first daughter to her mother, Sharon, and the early years of raising Marissa was, for the most part, shared between Sharon, Sharon's father, and Sharon's stepmother. They all lived in New York together and seemed like one big happy family. According to WGME, Marissa was the kind of child that never met a stranger and would even seek out the shy kids to make sure that they felt heard and seen. Marissa loved Elsa and Anna, playing with dolls, and she loved books. She loved to read. For her, books were this fantasy world where anything was possible. And before she was even 10, the outlet reports that she was already reading the Harry Potter series. Marissa was an old soul and wise beyond her years. The outlet reports that she already knew what she wanted to be when she grew up, which was an oceanographer, because she was fascinated by the animals of the ocean. They all seemed so unique and endless that she could spend hours in an aquarium getting lost in it all. By the time Marissa turned six, her mom Sharon had met and married a guy named Julio. Julio was 18 years older than her mother. Julio and Sharon went on to have two more children together, and by 2016, they decided that they were going to leave New York where their families lived and move up to Maine. According to WGME, Marissa's grandparents could tell that she didn't want to go. She didn't want to leave the only family she'd ever known to move to a whole new state with her mother, much older stepfather, and two new siblings. But she didn't have much of a choice. The couple, Sharon and Julio, and their now three kids, set off and wound up moving into a condo that Sharon's parents owned. And even though Sharon and Julio were living in Sharon's parents' condo, her parents started hearing from Sharon and Marissa less and less frequently. The outlet reports that when they were able to get a hold of their daughter and talk to her or Marissa, Julio always seemed to be standing next to them monitoring their conversations. Months went by, and by late 2017, Sharon was pregnant with her fourth child, her third with Julio. While living in the condo, the family got several noise complaints due to arguing that could be heard outside the home. Police had been called to the house several times, but from what I could find, no one was ever arrested, though according to Morbidology, many records of the visits to the family noted Julio as the aggressor. Now, I spoke to a police officer and asked about reports written on domestic calls where no one's arrested, and the officer said that they will note a primary aggressor if they can identify one. If they can't identify one, it'll be listed as mutual combat. With all that being said, based on a piece by Morbidology, the arguing was so loud and so constant that they seemed to remember the days where things were quiet more than they did the days where the arguing was actually taking place. The quiet is what seemed unusual. According to the Portland Press-Herald, the noise complaints became so frequent that even though the condo they were renting was owned by Sharon's parents, They were being evicted, and they were planning to move to a family shelter. WGME reports that Sharon's family sensed that they were having financial issues and were stressed, so Sharon's brother actually reached out and offered to let Marissa come back to New York and live with him. Apparently, he offered this several times, but they never took him up on it. 
I think it's important to point out here that the focus and concern seems to be centered around Marissa. I think for a long time, there was some kind of intuition that something was off, that something was wrong. If there's anything you take away from today's episode or any episode from any podcast covering a similar case, please let it be to trust your intuition. Because just a few months later, on February 25th of 2018, Marissa was dead. That day, the police department got a 911 call from Sharon and Julio's home with a report of an unresponsive child. According to the Portland Press-Herald, Julio said Marissa had gone down to the basement to watch a movie by herself, but that three hours later, when they went to check on her, they found her unresponsive in a utility closet. Morbidology reports that she was bleeding from the mouth. The problem with his story, though, was that when first responders got to the house, Marissa was dead, and it was clear that she had been dead for some time. Not for days, but it was clear that she had not died between the time the 911 call was made and when first responders got to the house. Not only was it clear to them that Marissa had not died within that short period of time, it was also clear to them that Marissa had been suffering abuse and, again, for some time. Morbidology reports that they initially noticed bruising on Marissa's stomach and swelling above her eye, but her injuries were far more extensive than that. The medical examiner performed Marissa's autopsy almost immediately and determined that she had been suffering extensive abuse over a prolonged period of time. According to the Penobscot Bay pilot, the medical examiner noted that Marissa had likely died just hours before being brought to him and that she had injuries from her head to her toe, including 40 to 50 blunt force injuries possibly caused by a belt buckle, knuckles, or feet. Not three, not seven, not 14 blunt force injuries, 40 to 50. She also had deep, open, and infected wounds to her knees, shins, and feet, which appeared to be caused by pressure. Which begged the question, how did a 10-year-old girl have so much pressure on her knees, shins, and feet that it would cause deep open wounds? Open wounds that at the time of her death were infected. The Portland Herald Press reported that Marissa also had three broken ribs that appeared to be in the healing process, along with a lacerated liver, fluid in her lungs, and bleeding on the brain. All of this is enough to break your heart into a million pieces and shatter your soul, but Marissa also had hair loss, and according to the Penobscot Bay pilot, the medical examiner found heart cells that had died in dramatic thymic involution. The way he explained it, if I understood correctly, was that Marissa was constantly in a state of fear or pain. Adrenaline was constantly being pumped through her body at a rate that her organs couldn't keep up with. Some of the cells in her heart had died as a result and her thymus gland had been affected by it to the point that her body wasn't able to fight off the infection from her open wounds. The Emmy noted that all of Marissa's injuries were individually survivable if treated by a doctor, but combined and with no medical intervention were fatal. He ruled her cause of death as battered child syndrome. Regardless of everything we now know about the extent of Marissa's injuries, when police asked Sharon and Julio about them, they initially stuck to the story that they'd simply found Marissa unresponsive in the basement, but added that Marissa was sometimes violent towards herself, 
and other family members. According to the Portland Press-Herald, when Sharon was asked to explain Marissa's injuries, she said that she, Marissa, just figured that my parents aren't down here watching me, so this is a good time for me to hurt myself way more than I used to. WGME reports that Sharon told a detective that Marissa would lie to Julio and would act out because she was jealous of her two younger siblings. If you're raging, you're not alone. And the detectives were obviously not buying it. And here enters the carousel of Sharon's stories. She first admitted to spanking Marissa and at times forcing her to kneel until she calmed down. Then the possibility seemed to open up a little more. The Portland Press-Herald reports that Sharon said Julio might have possibly used harsher punishments but that she didn't know what he did when she was in the other room, though she said she didn't think he would ever hurt his kids like that. But Marissa wasn't his kid. In fact, Marissa was the only child in that house that wasn't biologically his, and no one was talking about the kids as a whole. They were talking about one, 10-year-old Marissa. Eventually, Sharon broke down and admitted that Marissa was being abused, but said that it was all at the request of Sharon's step-parent via texts, but said that she hadn't actually seen the texts, that Julio had just relayed them to her. For example, making Marissa take off her clothes and kneel on the tile floor while they hit her with hands and a belt. The detective essentially called her on her bullshit, that they didn't believe her story for a second, and if they looked, they didn't think they'd find those alleged texts. And they were right. Sharon eventually admitted that that entire story wasn't true, and the truth was, according to News Center Maine, that she and Julio would whip Marissa with a belt 15 or so times twice a day, hitting her in the face, head, and torso, and would also punish her by locking her in a closet where Morbidology reports Marissa would scream and cry for hours. When Marissa would kneel on the floor, WGME reports that Sharon would stand on the back of Marissa's legs while Julio watched, which now explains those open wounds caused by pressure on Marissa's knees, shins, and feet. According to Sharon's arrest record, she weighed 135 pounds. That was the amount of weight being pushed against Marissa's knees, shins, and feet against that tile floor. On the day that Marissa died, Sharon said that Marissa told her, I feel like I'm dying. A 10-year-old girl had to tell her mother that she felt like she was dying. And she was. Did they stop abusing her? Did they seek any medical help? No. They didn't believe her. They thought she was faking it and attacked her yet again. At one point during her abuse, Marissa was hit so hard with a metal mop that morbidology says it snapped in half. The amount of evil behind the force of a metal mop breaking against the torso of a 10-year-old girl is unfathomable. She was hit so hard from the outside that one of her internal organs, her liver, broke. After the last attack on Marissa, she lost her ability to speak and even hold herself up. And not long after, she died from her injuries. Sharon cried to the detectives that she should have listened to Marissa when she told her that she felt like she was dying, seeming to be somewhat remorseful about the pain Marissa's body was enduring. And yeah, she should have listened to Marissa, 
But even saying that Sharon should have listened to her feels wrong because Marissa should have never had to beg for mercy. There never should have been a first time. The excuse Sharon gave for the abuse she admitted to was that they did it because Marissa was disrespectful and, according to News Center Maine, wouldn't stop screaming. WGMA reports that Sharon told detectives that they didn't seek any medical attention for Marissa because they were afraid of getting their other two children taken away. But rest assured, the other two children in the home were taken away. Sharon went on to admit that she is literally the worst mother in the entire world and told the detectives that she was scared to go to jail for what she had done to Marissa. And if you're here wearing your what the fuck face, you're not alone. Sharon's fear of jail will never amount to anything close to the fear Marissa was forced to endure. While Sharon was finally telling the police what really happened to Marissa, Julio, on the other hand, was telling the police that he was worried Sharon was going to try and pin all of this on him. Regardless, Julio and Sharon were both charged with depraved indifference murder. This was the first time I had ever heard of that specific charge, and it felt a little less than they deserved based on the wording, so I looked it up. According to Maine legislature, someone can get charged with depraved indifference murder when they engage in conduct that manifests a depraved indifference to the value of human life and that in fact causes the death of another human being, which fits. And the sentencing guidelines are pretty solid. If found guilty, Julio and Sharon faced 25 years to life in prison. Within three months of Marissa's murder, Julio and Sharon were in court, and you couldn't miss Sharon's pregnant belly popping through her orange jumpsuit. I shit you not, after Sharon admitted to everything she did and Julio stating that he was worried she was going to try and pin it all on him, these fucking gremlins both had the audacity to plead not guilty. Within three months of pleading not guilty, Julio decided that he knew what evidence there was and that he didn't want to spend the rest of his life in prison. So he changed his plea to guilty, hoping it would have some type of leniency effect on his sentencing. According to Morbidology, he admitted to physically disciplining Marissa and admitted to abusing her and trying to cover up her death by making it look like an accident. At his sentencing hearing, NCEN reports that Julio cried as he said, One day, I hope Jesus Christ and you, Marissa, will forgive me. But the outlet reports that Julio wasn't the only one who spoke. Julio's mother got up and said, My son is a good man. I love my son with every fiber of my soul. I am not embarrassed of him. If I was able to take his place in this instance, I would do it. The fuck he is, lady. The fuck he is. But Marissa's grandfather was able to say a few words, too. And when he did, he made them count. While Julio's mom was saying that he was a good man and she wasn't embarrassed of her son and that she'd take his place in an instance, you know, in jail, Marissa's grandfather told the court that if he could trade his own life for Marissa's, he would in a heartbeat. Marissa's grandfather requested that Julio get the full sentence of life in prison, but Julio was only given 55, though at his age, 
55 years likely will be a life sentence. You might think that with Julio's guilty plea, Sharon might follow suit, you know, since she already admitted everything in her police interviews. But no, she was going to trial. While she waited in jail, she gave birth to her fourth child, a child who will never have to endure the depravity of that household and its two parents. Prior to Sharon's trial, her defense did what defense teams do and in one motion attempted to get Sharon's statements to police suppressed as evidence. I mean, they're pretty damning, so. According to NECN, her defense claims that Sharon was coerced by Julio and was afraid of repercussions from him if she didn't take the blame. But let's remember, Sharon first said that she and Julio had never abused their kids and even said that Julio would never abuse his kids until she finally broke down and told the police what really happened, implicating the both of them. The defense went through the checklist, asking if the police had done everything properly, like Mirandizing Sharon, which they did, then went on to ask these detectives if they had any training in identifying victims of domestic abuse, which, again, they did. In fact, according to NECN, the detectives said that with their training, Sharon didn't seem to exhibit any of the typical signs that would have indicated she was a victim, and even noted that she seemed to giggle during one of the visits at the home where she pointed out the belt and mop that was used to beat Marissa and showed them where exactly on the floor Marissa was beaten. It should be no surprise that the attempt to suppress those statements was unsuccessful. In December of 2019, Sharon finally went to trial, and it's at this trial where we learned that this wasn't a case where no one could have seen this coming. The list of warning signs is lengthy, but I feel like it's important to walk through them because something has to change. The Penobscot Bay pilot was able to get a copy of all of the reports made to DHHS about concerns for Marissa's well-being and they are seemingly endless, and begin back in October of 2016 when Marissa had missed five days of school. Julio said it was due to Marissa seeking mental health treatment. However, the school had witnessed none of the behaviors he described. Something felt off, and they did their duty to report it. Two months later, the school made another report after more unexplained absences and noted that the family wasn't returning their calls. The school said that they'd gone to Marissa's house to talk to her parents and that while they were there, a neighbor had stopped them and told them that they were glad the school had come by because they'd heard a lot of yelling coming from the condo. That same day, a mental health professional made a completely separate report after both Marissa and Sharon were seen for crisis evaluations. Marissa was cleared, but Sharon was recommended for inpatient treatment. The problem arose when Julio got upset that Marissa and Sharon were evaluated outside of his presence. He was also upset that they wanted to keep Sharon for inpatient treatment there without him. This was just the first of many reports of people being concerned that Julio didn't want Marissa speaking to any professionals without him being there to monitor the conversation. In December of 2016, the school made another report about continued absences, and Sharon and Julio continued to say that it was due to medical appointments. It didn't take a genius to conclude that medical appointments don't last full days, and that there was something more going on here. That same day, a medical professional totally outside of the school made an additional report that when they suggested individual therapy for Marissa, 
The family went and talked amongst themselves before Marissa came up and told the professional that she didn't want to see anyone or meet with anyone without her parents there. Sharon then told them that they were going to be moving to a new professional for Marissa's treatment. There's clearly a pattern here. There was actually a third report that came in on the 15th, which makes three reports from three different people in one single day. That time, it was Sharon's providers who reported that Sharon had terminated all of her services with them. According to the list of reports from the Penobscot Bay pilot, which I'll link in Marissa's highlight, just five days after the three reports in one day, Julio told their caseworker that they'd met with the school the previous day to come up with a plan to put an end to Marissa's missing so much school. However, when the caseworker checked with the school, the school told them that, yes, they had met with Sharon and Julio, but they were not being genuine about getting serious about getting Marissa back on track, and they were concerned about her over the upcoming Christmas break. Fast forward a couple of months, and in April of 2017, the school made another report that they and Marissa's doctor were concerned about the family. Marissa was still missing school, and this time they were told that it was due to Marissa being hospitalized. However, Marissa's doctor hadn't been made aware of any hospitalizations. The school went to Marissa's home again, and again a neighbor told them that they too were concerned about the family, though they didn't seem to go into a ton of detail. The pattern of multiple reports in one day continued, and on that same day, Marissa's mental health provider also made a report about Marissa's appointment the previous day. They reported that at Marissa's appointment, only Julio spoke, and that when he did, he talked about Marissa and Sharon's mental health. This provider had written a note excusing Marissa from school for the amount of time that she was at the appointment, but Marissa did not return to school that day at all. The mental health professional was so concerned about Marissa that he actually asked the police to do a welfare check, and when the police came by, Julio told them that Marissa was sick. To sum up that day, the school, a primary care physician, a neighbor, a mental health professional, and the police were all involved in a concern for Marissa's well-being. A professional went to Marissa's school the following day to try and talk to her about what was going on but Marissa told them that she wasn't supposed to talk to them and that she felt safe at home. The following month, DHHS got yet another report, or reports, I should say. Marissa's primary care physician made a report about medical neglect, saying that Julio and Sharon kept saying that Marissa had significant mental and behavioral health needs, but weren't following through with any of the suggested services and were just taking her to the emergency room. The following day, Marissa's mental health professional made a report saying that Julio had canceled Marissa's appointment, saying that she was currently in the ER. The problem here was that they couldn't find any record of her having been there. That same day and the following day, police were called to Marissa's home for reports that they could hear a male yelling and a female screaming. The female, seeming to be Sharon, was reported to be screaming, while the male, seeming to be Julio, was reportedly yelling at her to shut up and calling her retarded. I hate even having to say that word, but because it's in the report, I felt like it was necessary to include to show just how heartless and volatile the situation was. A few weeks later, police were called yet again by a neighbor who said that they saw Julio yelling at Marissa inside the family vehicle and punching her in the leg. 
all of this happening while Sharon cried. The caller said that Julio was abusive to Sharon and that everyone in their building was afraid of Julio. A week after this call to police, the person who made the report called again just to make sure that they knew that Sharon was in the car when this happened. It's not a shock that just a couple of days later, the school made yet another report about Marissa's unexcused absences, which totaled 29 days at this point. According to these reports obtained by the Penobscot Bay pilot, the caseworker scheduled a visit to meet Marissa at the school and speak to her alone, and then later that day meet with a family. Sharon called the caseworker and told her that Marissa wouldn't talk to anyone she didn't know because she had a nervous condition. Regardless, the caseworker told Sharon that it was necessary that she meet with Marissa in private. When the caseworker met with Marissa, she did in fact tell the caseworker that she wasn't comfortable talking to her without her parents there. The caseworker continued to try and talk with Marissa, but noted that she wouldn't respond, and that she appeared to be shaking at times during their meeting. Sensing that something was up, she asked Marissa what her parents had told her about this interview, to which Marissa responded, I don't know. The meeting with Marissa ended, but the caseworker felt like it was necessary to speak to the school, who again expressed their concerns about how many days Marissa had missed and the fact that she wasn't even allowed to attend field trips. When the caseworker met with Sharon and Julio later that day, Sharon told her that Marissa couldn't go on field trips because they were worried about her passing out due to low weight. However, Julio chalked up the missed field trips to his age-old excuse of medical appointments. And in the most manipulative pile of horseshit I have ever heard, Julio went as far as to say that Marissa didn't want to go to school because they were pulling her out of class to talk about things that she didn't want to talk about. Oh, okay, so it's the school and DHHS's fault that Marissa's missing school. Got it. But wait, I thought it was because of medical appointments. Or maybe her nervous condition. Or was it because they were afraid her low weight was going to cause her to pass out? The caseworker wound up calling Sharon's father to see what he knew about any of this, and he told them that after the family moved to Maine, it was hard to even get in contact with any of them, and that when they did, Julio was always in the background monitoring the conversation. Five days after this, Julio called the caseworker and said that Marissa was having a mental health crisis and harming herself because of messages Marissa was receiving from Sharon's father. But how on earth would Marissa be getting messages from anyone? She wasn't so much as allowed to talk to her grandfather on the phone without being monitored, let alone doctors, mental health professionals, or the caseworker. So again, explain to me how Marissa was getting messages from anyone. So in Julio's world, Sharon's father was now added to the list of people who are, in his eyes, to blame for everything going on with Marissa. According to the reports from the Penobscot Bay pilot, Julio went as far as to say that he'd gotten a court order against Sharon's stepmother for harassment. But wait, I thought these texts were from Sharon's father. And didn't he say that the messages were to Marissa, not him? In the next few days and weeks, Julio made a series of calls saying he thought Marissa needed inpatient treatment and even asked the caseworker to talk to Marissa about the possibility of being hospitalized if her behavior continued, as if it's a threat and not a tool. Obviously, the caseworker declined, and both the caseworker and the case manager recommended that he call crisis services. 
While all of that was going on, the school made another report concerned about how tired Marissa was at school that week. Sharon's excuse was that it was due to a new medication she was on and offered up information on said medication. However, both the school and Marissa's primary care physician were concerned about the accuracy of the medication list that Sharon had given to the school. In case you're wondering what Julio's excuse was for Marissa's sleepiness, he had a totally different story than Sharon's. He said Marissa was tired because of her mental health issues that were disturbing her sleep. In July of 2017, Marissa was hospitalized five times in five days. According to the reports from the Penobscot Bay pilot, Marissa was taken to the emergency room on the 6th, the 7th, the 8th, the 9th, and the 10th. And each time, they left before any plans could be made or services could be offered. At one point, it's reported that Sharon and Julio told the hospital that they wanted Marissa discharged because they said they'd officially been evicted from their condo and were moving back to New York. Just a little over a week later, the hospital social worker called to report that Julio and Sharon were trying to get Marissa's medication refilled and that they'd taken her to the emergency room several times seeking medication for Marissa. The hospitalizations escalate from here. In September of 2017, a mental health provider made a report that Marissa had been hospitalized three times in six weeks, being taken to the ER seven times. Throughout all of those trips, no one observed any of the behaviors that Marissa's parents were reporting. During one of these hospitalizations, it's reported that Marissa was diagnosed with autism. That same month, Sharon's stepmom spoke to Marissa's mental health provider and said that she was concerned that Sharon and Julio weren't giving Marissa the medications prescribed to her, which seems odd considering the amount of times that they went to the ER asking for it. Sharon's stepmom also said that Sharon seemed to be having a hard time parenting three children due to what she refers to as intellectual impairment and said that Julio seemed paranoid. There were countless reports of Julio and Sharon either missing or canceling follow-up appointments after Marissa's repeated hospitalizations, and there were phone calls that weren't answered or returned, and there were unannounced visits with no response. In October, Julio called to cancel yet another appointment saying that someone was sick, but the mental health provider heard someone screaming in the background. Julio said it was Sharon having a crisis. The screaming was so alarming that the provider told him to either call the police or take Sharon to the ER, which he said he would do. That same month, the police were called to the house after someone reported that Sharon was holding a large knife and threatening to kill herself all while the kids were in the home. Julio referred to this as a bad tantrum, and Sharon was hospitalized, while Marissa was reportedly also getting treatment in a residential program. When the caseworker came to the house, which I thought they'd gotten evicted from, she noted that the two young children were there and that they seemed safe. When they met with Sharon, Sharon said that she and Julio had a strong relationship where he supported her and that there was no history of domestic violence. Marissa was released from her residential treatment program in late November of 2017, three months prior to her death. 
In January of 2018, a report was made out of concern for the youngest children in the house after Sharon's primary care provider said that she'd been hospitalized again for suicidal ideations. After this, there was a lot of confusion back and forth about who the family was seeing and what appointments were either made, canceled, or rescheduled. On February 2nd of 2018, Julio called to report that Sharon was having mental health challenges and, as he had in the past, was told to call crisis services. It's strange that he made so many calls to people assigned to their case, but had clearly taken Marissa to the ER on multiple occasions. On February 23rd of 2018, a caseworker met with the family at their home in the basement. The caseworker noted that Marissa seemed tired and appeared to fall asleep on Sharon during the meeting. It wasn't until the trial that we learned that according to the Penobscot Bay pilot, Marissa didn't walk herself to the basement prior to that meeting. She couldn't have because she had lost the ability to walk. She wasn't even able to hold herself up in a seated position. Marissa didn't speak during the meeting because she wasn't able to. According to the Portland Press-Herald, the worker noticed bruises on Marissa's eye along with some scratches, but when Marissa was asked what had happened, she didn't answer. It wasn't until later that everyone found out why. The outlet reports that even though Marissa couldn't answer, the worker was told that Marissa had been abusing herself. The worker said that she took the family at face value. Sharon had denied any domestic abuse, and it was noted that the children were believed to be safe and that Julio had taken immediate steps to protect them. Two days later, Marissa was dead, and the extent of her abuse became more than apparent. Throughout the trial, Sharon's defense was essentially that she was afraid of Julio and gave incriminating statements to police early in the investigation because of that. According to the Penobscot Bay pilot, the jury was shown 17 photos of the 6,500 photos found on nine different phones recovered from the house. Most of the photos taken were of Marissa's injuries and taken on February 24th, the day before she died. Her injuries had literally been photographed prior to her death and found on an absurd number of phones throughout a house with two whole adults in it. One of the photos shown was of Marissa sitting in a chair without any clothes on, where you can see a black eye and bruises throughout her body that were clearly in different stages of healing due to the variation of colors. Another one of the photos was a close-up of extensive bruising on Marissa's legs and hip. Beth Brogan of New Center, Maine, tweeted that a detective was shown a photo of a young child with a significant amount of bruising to her face, chest, front and backs of her legs, along with a large abrasion and a significant amount of blood coming from it. There was yet another photo shown, and it was a Marissa kneeling on the floor with her hands above her head and a pregnant Sharon in the background in the same position. However, according to NECN, there was earlier testimony from the accused, so Sharon, that she was in that position because she wanted to show Marissa that it wasn't as painful as she said it was. But that position was painful, so painful that it caused open wounds that became infected, an infection that didn't receive any treatment. It was a painful position that Marissa was put into to receive more painful abuse, whether it was hitting, kicking, being whipped with a belt, or being beaten with a metal mop. 
Out of all of the photos recovered, it's reported that they never noticed any bruises on Sharon in any of them. Along with the photos, several videos were recovered that all seem to have been taken by Julio. In them, it seems like he's filming them as some kind of evidence that either Sharon or Marissa are the problem and that they're not simply responding to whatever happened before he turned the camera on. The Penobscot Bay pilot reports that Julio ended one video by saying, I hope that she, Sharon, loses all her kids. Thanks for listening. In another video, Julio's seen following Marissa around as she screams and cries, asking Julio to stop recording her. And in one, Sharon is seen in the background casually placing one of Marissa's younger siblings in a high chair. The jury in this case had to view the unimaginable. They had to look at the photos of a badly beaten 10-year-old Marissa Kennedy, watch videos of her being antagonized, and listen to interviews where her mother detailed the abuse that Marissa suffered. The jurors were visibly emotional throughout the trial. The medical examiner, teachers, a neighbor, you name it, all testified at Sharon's trial, and when it came time to deliberate, NECN reports that it only took them five hours to come to a unanimous decision. Sharon was found guilty of depraved indifference murder, and while her defense asked for the minimum, which would have been 25 years, she was sentenced to 48. Following Marissa's death, WGME reports that state legislature launched an external review of the state's handling of her case. Today, a stone bench sits in Castle Park in honor of Marissa, and the Penobscot Bay pilot reports that all three of her younger siblings are now in the care of family in New York. Childwelfare.gov lists several signs of child abuse and neglect which Marissa exhibited, including unexplained bruises or black eyes, frequent absences from school, fading bruises or other marks after absences from school, and not receiving help for physical or medical problems brought to the parents' attention. While this isn't a case where everyone noticed but no one said anything because countless people reported their concerns over and over again, if you suspect a child is being abused, please contact your local Department of Child Services as well as the police department. In other cases we've covered, it's been helpful to also notify the school if you can. It's better to say something and it be nothing than to say nothing and it be something. No child should ever have to endure abuse. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Marissa's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and meet me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we discuss this case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, which is today. All episodes are totally ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch, and of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.